On today's episode of Vincent Jason Save the Nation, we're going to be talking about vaccines, the government's plan to go door to door, and where does it all end? This is Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Hey, welcome everybody back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Uh, like and subscribe if you get an opportunity. And we are going to talk a little bit about Joe Biden's plan in terms of getting unvaccinated clusters vaccinated. So Vince, what's on your mind? Yeah, I'm. Uh, this, the big news this week is this: uh, the White House's insistence that they now want to go door to door in order to encourage uh, vaccinations uh, nationwide. Uh, that initial statement was the kind of thing that got everybody's eyebrows up. I think, like, wow, okay, a door to door campaign. Now, what does that look like? Will people be bringing vaccines to your doors? Will they be offering shots? Like, will it be like Uber Eats instead of the Uber vaccine? Uh, like, how is this actually going to present itself? And as the week went on, we got a little bit more detail. Uh, the White House now saying that they're going to rely on volunteer organizations that they will direct to go to communities that have uh, relatively low vaccination rates. Uh, so I imagine just based on the conventional wisdom of all of that, that they're looking to send, you know, deploy these volunteers to uh, typically red districts where you're going to find probably more hesitancy among Republicans in terms of the records uh, than you would among Democrats. Um, but that's that's going to be the policy. That is what the Biden administration is up to. Um, I, I'll just I guess my opinion of this is, OK, when does it all end? You know, at what point do we say, look, we've told everybody every single thing we possibly can about these vaccines. They are free people. They can make decisions for themselves. We've we've given them all the information. And now we need to let Americans make up their mind and uh, stop trying to push the vaccines on everybody, because at some point you're going to get deeply diminishing returns on all those those government efforts when uh, people have made up their mind about whether or not they want to get it, Jason. Well, my, my opinion actually is um, I, I understand where you're coming from. And this is this is a place where I don't think we're going to have like this you know, butt heads and, and be completely vehemently uh, opposed to one another's position. Um, but I think that the government should never give up on public health. And one of the things that we know is that, like most viruses, this virus is going to mutate and it is mutating. And eventually, if we don't get everyone vaccinated, it gives uh, the opportunity, you know, because viruses are opportunistic. Um, it gives the virus the opportunity to find ways to evade the vaccines, which puts us all in danger. And uh, I think it's important. It is, like you said, it, it is. Uh, it, it has become this weird partisan thing in terms of vaccines or not being vaccinated, which I think is so interesting, given the fact that the reason we have this vaccine um, is Donald Trump. You have to give him his props. Um, as much as as many mistakes as I think that Donald Trump made that cost us 600,000 lives, I do think the one good thing he's done is Operation Warp Speed and getting us these vaccines. And you have to give, I think, if any fair-minded person uh, has to say uh that trump gave us the vaccine through operation warp speed i was skeptical i was like no way they're going to get a vaccine that quickly but he did it um and he pressured it and he he said look we've got to get this done he, he partnered with uh private drug companies who were very much 
eager to, uh, you know, get people to forget about some of the other bad things that drug companies have done over the past 10 years. And then, you know, you have to give props to the Biden administration for the rollout of the of the vaccine. Um, I think any fair minded person has to say those two things were were good things that came out of both uh, administrations. Can I engage we- you? Can I engage you in a hypothetical about that? Do you think that if Trump was president uh, today, what do you think vaccine uptake would be among Republicans? Uh, I, I think that people would still, you know, there would probably be a large number of Republicans uh, who would be taking the vaccine. Certainly, you would not have these same clusters um, where a third of Americans are not taking the vaccine. Um, mm. I think if President Trump came out today and pushed vaccines on the American people uh, and said, look, I endorse this, I'm vaccinated. Uh, rumor has it that he is vaccinated. I, I don't know that to be true. I don't think he's come out and actually said it. But if he were to say, look, vaccines are good, I think you would see an immediate spike he, uh, um, in, in, in vaccine, uh, in people taking vaccines. And, and let me just say one last point, and that sure. is that a Yale University study says that vaccines have prevented uh, 279,000 additional deaths and 100, or excuse me, 1.25 million more hospitalizations. They've been really effective. And the more opportunity we give this virus to mutate and harm the American people, uh, you know, the worse off it is for all of us. And we've already seen this mutation with the Delta variant, which is the predominant variant in the country right now. And with that Delta variant, um, it is more resistant to the vaccines. Not it's vaccines are still thus far. Luckily, they're still uh, effective, but it is more resistant. Mm-hmm. So people can get sicker. Uh, they can transmit it. They can carry it far more than they did with Alpha. And it's going to get worse and worse. And we're seeing something coming. I believe it's Lambda out of out of Peru that people are, uh, are really afraid of. And and again, a lot of these countries that got the Chinese one are, are in particular t- danger. And we have to keep the American people safe. Yeah, and our vaccines, in terms of how they've fared against Delta, uh, have been pretty good. You're right um, that there has been, Delta is able to get by those defenses a little bit easier than the, uh, the first version of COVID. Um, but even if it does, the success of the vaccines and the success of natural immunity, by the way, which is rarely talked about in the press, uh, is that if you even if you get Delta through in a breakthrough case, your chances of getting severely sick almost almost non-existent. Your chances of dying right. almost non-existent, very small. Right. So the vaccines are super helpful for that. Natural immunity, that is people who've been previously infected with COVID, super helpful uh, as a defense against uh, further COVID infection of any kind. You know, I, I ask about Trump because I, I do think it's interesting how partisan dynamics definitely play a role in beha- behaviors. And I think it's of both political parties. My opinion is that if Trump was president today, you'd have some increase in um, the uh, number of Republicans who'd be willing to take the vaccine. Now, Trump himself, for what it's worth, has said in a couple of interviews since his presidency that he does encourage people to take the vaccine. Now, he hasn't done some sort of robust campaign or anything. He hasn't filmed a video. He hasn't done anything like that. Uh, But he has said out loud in interviews that, uh, of course, he recommends that people get the vaccine. Um, And it really, as far as I can tell, hasn't changed things dramatically. Um, 
I do wonder if there would have been an inverse association, uh, say, say Trump had won. Again, we're engaging in all hypotheticals here. Mm-hmm. But say Trump had won, what percentage of Democrats would be more reticent to take the vaccine? I'm sure that number would have been higher. I don't know how much higher it would have been. Uh, it was obviously a political um, weapon during the campaign. You had you know, people like Kamala Harris expressing that she wouldn't trust the vaccine on Donald Trump's say-so, uh, and that she needed to wait to hear what the scientists had to say, which I, I understand that's a reasonable opinion, waiting to see what scientists think. That, that makes a lot of sense. But it was the kind of statement that um, engendered mistrust in the development of the vaccines anyway, and it was needless. It should have never been done. And I thought that that was a real, um, I thought that was a bad move uh, on the part of Democrats who engaged in that kind of reasoning during the campaign because it diminished um, sort of the good faith assessments that could have gone into, is this vaccine right for me? So I, I, uh, I think this is a theme between you, for you and I which is the politicization, the politicization, let me see if I get all the letters in there, of, <laughs> of so many issues um, has a distorting effect on what reality actually is. And uh, I think that that's been true in the case of these vaccines. Uh, and, you know, people have every right to, to demand evidence to support whether or not they should get the vaccine and to, to get honest assessments. And I'm afraid that what's happened so far is that they've gotten a lot of um, sort of like the most lowest common denominator, like, okay, stupid, just take it and, you know, stop asking questions. It's safe. Well, yeah, I I think that one of the things and, you know, you and I were going to do an interview with somebody. It it didn't come through. But I think one place where I think a, a lot of uh people on the left will um you know the moderate left um you know i would say bernie sanders to the center <laughs> you know i think they would be upset with me is that i i really believe that democrats have not engaged rural to be honest rural white america enough i think that and, and in some ways it has insulted them and that's why, in some cases, they even vote against their own interests, um, because Democrats are oftentimes like, "Take the vaccine, stupid!" And it's like nobody's going to do that. You know what I mean? There, there is a way to engage them, um, and it's there's a way to say, "Look, your interests are uh, tied to everyone else's, regardless of of their skin color or whatever." Um, let's, you know. Let me go. One thing Democrats always did well uh, prior was to go into places like West Virginia and talk to working people. They were the party of unions and all these kinds of things. And I think that they failed miserably at that. Um, And I know there are a lot of my my colleagues and and friends on the left, you know, who are similar um, to me politically who disagree and have a problem when I say that. And, you know, I think dismissing everything um, and chalking everything up to rural or working class white racism, I think is a mistake. I think it's also the fact that we, you know, the left has insulted them sometimes. And I think that there's a way to get around that. But that's probably a a longer discussion. what I will say is I won't put this all on Donald Trump. Um, I think that what Kamala Harris said was correct. 
And Republicans oftentimes feel the same way. Part of this is messaging. And I think Donald Trump, you know, I understand what she said. She was saying, look, Donald Trump told us uh, hydroxychloroquine. He told us, you know, maybe drink bleach. He told us all these kinds of things that were wrong and he downplayed it. You know, I'm not going to trust him because he's not a physician and he's not, you know, certainly a board certified physician who's been practicing, who's, you know, an immunologist or a virologist or someone who with the credentials to actually tell me about this. I will trust scientists. And it turns out that studies are saying Republicans feel the same way. This is why the the Biden campaign really or the Biden uh, administration is really trying to focus on uh, getting to doctors. You know, messaging is important. So they want um, because Republicans don't trust Joe Biden, but they trust their family doctor. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to get the message out to doctors and to their employers because they don't trust government sources. Many of these people who are consuming all kinds of media that tells them not to trust the government. And in some cases it's valid. In some cases it's nonsense. But the thing is people trust scientists. They trust people who have a background in these kinds of things, particularly when they're dealing with an administration that is across the political divide. So I think that um, I understood what Kamala Harris is saying. And I think the Republicans in those clusters that are primarily across the Southern states and the Midwest feel the exact same way. You know, um, they are like, look, I'm not listening to Joe Biden. I'm not listening to Kamala Harris. I'm not listening to Jen Psaki. You know, I'm not even necessarily listening to the Biden appointed uh, Surgeon General, you know, Um, just like, you know, I tended to trust Jerome Powell, who also right now is coming out and saying, take the vaccine, please. You know what I mean? He's not insulting people. He's saying, please take the vaccine. Um, I think it's, you know, the same sort of thing. Right. But here, one of the one of the big problems uh, has been with scientists is that the extent to which you could generically trust science has diminished over the last year, too. And uh, I think you kind of use the phrase, I think the right way. It's like, you know, there are some people who tell you don't trust the government. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong, that assessment. And I think that increasingly that's becoming the case with scientists who've become overtly politicized and have um, on a number of issues, like for instance, the the origins of the virus itself, that was a, that was a huge thing that you and I have talked about that com- got completely politicized and it obscured uh, actual fact gathering uh, that should have been occurring. Um, you know, the extent to which the CDC was moving at really, uh, I think, abusively glacial uh, pace, pacing when it came to announcing to the public what it knew about COVID and where things were safe. You know, being outside is one of the most safe, is one of the safest things you could possibly do. You could safely do that without a mask, without vaccination. Yet the CDC very reticent to admit that. The CDC reticent to change its guidance about masking when it came to vaccination. Um, until well after vaccines were available, instead of just acknowledging, yes, if you're vaccinated, you can go maskless. I think all of those are good examples of where there's clear science that's existed, children and the ability for them to be infected. All of that, examples where there's clear science, and yet um, all of the places where you turn to for scientific guidance have been an abysmal failure at actually communicating it. Um, You know, natural immunity is another great example of this 
where the CDC still refuses to put up guidance on what you can safely do once you've previously been infected with COVID. That's a real, that's a real scientific discussion and, and one that has some very clear results. You have very strong immunity from, from uh, prior infection. The CDC should be willing to say that if it's not paralyzed by politics or other corrupt motives. And this is where I wanna ask you a question. Um, corrupt motives and to the extent that you may think they exist. I, I, I hate engaging in conspiracy theorizing, but it's a useful exercise in terms of just like thinking through issues and then kicking the tires and figuring out whether or not there's something there. Do you think that like the fact that Pfizer is making ungodly sums of money from all of this, Moderna making ridiculous profits, from all of this. Johnson & Johnson is not, by the way, they're selling that vaccine at cost, but the other two big ones are making massive profits. Does that have any influence on policymakers? Do those relationships with those big pharmaceutical companies have, have any influence on policymakers when they release guidance about what we should do and maybe don't release guidance uh, I, on things like natural immunity? I don't. Uh, honestly, um, and I, I understand why you would be suspicious of that. Um, I also think that with this virus, because it's been politicized by forces, I think outside of the scientific community, and there were also we're, we're dealing with something, you know, in real time. This isn't something that we've known for a long time. It's not the flu. It's this is something that we're learning about in real time. And when we look at for example, natural immunity, there were a lot of stories that came out uh, because people were thinking about these things, antibodies and, and such. And there were stories of people who came out and had COVID twice. Um, so there was, there's still, I think, concern in the scientific community. We don't wanna put out a guidance and be wrong um, because it could claim lives, it could cost lives. Um, I don't necessarily think the motivation in this particular case and, you know, as such, of course, we know um, in a capitalist society, you know, things come down to capital. That's oftentimes and, and these companies do want to make money, um, particularly when some of them are fighting lawsuits because of, you know, I, I don't know about Pfizer and Moderna. I shouldn't necessarily say that, but big pharma in general. Right. Um, is, is certainly, you know, paying out huge sums and leaking money. Um, I think that they probably do, you know, are right. In other, about in other words, like there have been pharmaceutical companies who've been deeply unscrupulous. It's not it's not all like good yeah. faith efforts by these pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that is certainly um, an issue. And, and but I think in this particular case, um, I don't think that that is what's going on. I, I think, honestly, um, that the CDC and these government entities yeah. are tiptoeing, number one, because people who are anti-science with big audiences will go out there and say, see, they were wrong about this. See, they were wrong about that. See, you know, this claims so many lives and they told us this, you know, um, uh -huh. and I think they are trying to be very, very careful back things you know of course we've seen so many different studies there are studies on everything that are saying conflicting things i can remember the early studies that said you know remdesivir was was a good way of treating it then you know other studies studies said it wasn't other studies said hey uh you know the mir the miracle cure for this 
was hydroxychloroquine. Other studies say they don't. There was something that came out recently and said, well, if you're really sick and you're about to die, then hydroxychloroquine may help a little bit. Like there's there's all kinds of competing studies with yes. competing messages. And even if the studies are decent, you know, double blind, you know, uh, peer reviewed studies, right. the problem is that people will take some of the results out of context to make a political point. And that's these are true. people with big audiences. And that's so true. that's that's the concern that I think the CDC um, has and the FDA and everybody else who is involved in this uh, attempt to tackle uh, COVID-19. And so I'm hoping that people will have some trust in scientists and in science and in um, some of what we, we've we been getting, the guidances that we've been getting that are based on several studies before they yeah. start throwing things out. I don't want the CDC to start throwing something out every week because then I'm going to start ignoring it. So I, I don't want them to be like, oh, yeah, you had COVID. And there are also people, again, because of our problems with testing, who think they had COVID and didn't. Or, you know, there, there's there's a lot of troubles out there. It's Yeah, I mean, look, the government throws out all sorts of stuff that we ignore, too. Like, for instance, the FDA says that you're supposed to cook your steak to a minimum of 145 degrees. Uh, no God-fearing American should cook their steak to 145 degrees. All right, hold tight uh, because I want to I want to argue against my conspiracy theory in just a moment. All right, so here's here's now where I argue against my own conspiracy theory. So as I said to you just a moment ago, uh, that you know maybe a lot of what's motivating the government in terms of what they tell us and what they don't tell us is the bottom lines of these giant pharmaceutical companies that Moderna and Pfizer can make money hand over fist. And they are making a tremendous amount of money. Now, with all of that said, something interesting happened in the last 24 hours. Pfizer came out and said, well, looks like it's time for a booster shot. You see this? They want to start pushing boosters out, a third shot, because they said, you know, this Delta variant is such a threat. We're going to have to give everyone a third shot, including if you're fully vaccinated. Uh, and so much of the country is fully vaccinated uh, right now. It's a, a, a handsome majority of the country is. I believe 67% uh, have gotten at least one shot. And that's, those are good numbers. Um, in addition to whatever natural immunity is out there, nobody keeps a good record on it. But Pfizer says, we want to do a booster. Now, to my surprise, and I will admit this, the FDA and the CDC immediately released a joint statement yesterday saying, no, 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 not so fast. There is no evidence that a third booster at this time is required. Now, I can see them doing that for one of two reasons. One, it's a completely good faith effort where they say, you like Pfizer, back the hell up. Or two, they don't want to scare people away. <laughs> They're just like, look, Stop telling people about a third shot or anything else. We just need to get them the first shot, all right? So stop coming along and bringing up this booster shot idea. It's going to diminish um, our effort to get people vaccinated. What do, you, what do you make of that development? Yeah, so I, I was looking at that. And um, I think, again, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that people would be turned off if they're like, I'm going to get endless shots. You know, yeah. this is never going to stop, which, um, you know, there are vaccines that come out every year. There's a flu vaccine that comes out every single year. And some people get them every year. Not, not a lot. I think, you know, like 25% of Americans get a flu shot or whatever. 
Um, and but this again has been so politicized that you can't make it seem like, hey, get your get your flu shot and your COVID shot, you know, because people are gonna be like, this is tyranny. They want to inject me with a microchip so they can see into my brain. <laughs> like there's so many crazy ways that people take this. Um, that I think we need to encourage people in order to save lives in the present. Look, let's not talk about what's down the road, six months down the road. Now, and I understand, I think Pfizer, um, you know, is, I think Pfizer's actual, you know, reason for this booster, I don't think it necessarily is money. I think it is like, yo, we are actually, you know, our uh, effectiveness now that the Delta variant is Wait. the dominant variant, yeah, we we are, um, you know, we're we're not as effective. Our, Wait, you know, why is why is it though, Jason, that I'm more cynical about the profit motive than you are? That's not supposed to happen. You're supposed to be more. Yeah, cynical I know, than. right? Uh, but I well, well I, I'll tell you this. And, and again, I was raised by a scientist, so I you know believe in in science and scientists that their motivations are normally. Uh, at least over the last, you know, 50 years or so are usually, you know, positive ones. Um, and I am also scared of the wives tales that go around, you know, like I, I can remember like there, there's all kinds of conspiracies that I heard as a kid. Mm. Um, for example, living in the Baltimore area that Hopkins was going around and kidnapping homeless black people off the street in the hood and doing experimentation on them or taking their their vital organs in order to give them to you know wealthy white people and transplants there you know and, and there was no evidence of that and i was like look you're gonna stop people from going in when they're sick you right. know what i mean when they need help yeah they think their kidneys gonna get jacked yeah that would change your whether or not you right. go to the er yeah right so that's why i'm always like you know err on the side of caution until you have evidence that there's a motivation here um, to harm people, then let, let's, you know, let's chill out. And I, and I get it, you know, I get why people in those Baltimore neighborhoods are concerned. I mean, if anybody read, you know, uh, about Henrietta Lacks, you know, I understand, you know, the concerns there a little bit different, but I understand the concerns. I understand why people don't trust particularly Big Pharma, who I don't trust. But I just want to say, like, in this particular case, when we're talking about public health, we're talking about keeping people healthy and them not dying. And we've already lost literally the equivalent to the population of Baltimore or the population of Boston, you know, 600,000 people, double the population of yeah. Miami. Like, you know, I, I, I literally want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you come with evidence, just like everybody, and that says, look, this is all about profit. They want to take people down. They don't care if people die. They just want green then I'll be with you 100%. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that they're looking to actively harm anyone, right? Like, I don't think any Pfizer's trying to steal kidneys, essentially, you know, <laughs> to use your analogy. But I do think that, like, they're very much driven by their profit motive. So I, I looked back, for instance, this morning on, on Pfizer and when they've been talking about boosters in February of this year, and maybe prior to that, in February of this year, uh, the CEO of Pfizer, this guy called Albert Borla, uh, had was talking already. He was like, yeah, we're going to make, you know, tremendous amount of profits this year, you know, talking to shareholders. And then later in the year, we expect that, you know, boosters are going to come along. I mean, so they're already, they've been charting this course for how are they going to make money off this thing? And they're very much looking forward to get out, getting out of what we're currently in 
this emergency use authorization phase. Because once this thing is fully certified, then Pfizer uh, is not going to have the price caps that it currently has and will be able to make a lot more money off of the vaccines. This is why they're so zealously protecting their patent too. Remember, Joe Biden at one point was talking about spreading out the research on this to generic companies around the world so that we could conquer COVID. And Pfizer instantly has been pushing back. They've got a massive ad campaign trying to protect their own profits. Um, so obviously, yeah, a key driver for that company is the money that they can make here. I don't think that's, I, that's definitely beyond question. I just, I just wonder at what cost. I mean, I think the, you know, the thing for, an, for a normal person to consider is, do I need the vaccine? A. B. Uh, are the risks of taking the vaccine, if I did take it, higher than getting COVID or being exposed in a world where I could get COVID? That's reasonable. Uh, and, um, and then finally, that, that element of natural immunity, like that goes into that second question, like, well, if, I, if I've already had that, you know, how should I think about the vaccine? And I've heard some, some scientists say, well, then just get one of the Pfizer shots. If you've been prior, in fact, get one of the shots, it'll help you. That's the kind of thing that'll make you, make you nice and strong in terms of your defenses. Um, but the other thing that stands out to me, Jason, is there's this study that just came out uh, from the UK, reaffirms a lot of what we've known about how children do not get infected with COVID at any meaningful rate. And in fact, of those in the UK who were infected over the course of the pandemic, just 25 children died. Now that's horrible that anybody would lose a child, but yeah. just 25, meaning like the chances of any kid dying from COVID are one in, you know, pick, pick some number that you can't even contemplate. It's just like those chances are abysmally small or actually gratifyingly small. Um, and that means that, you know, as we've watched some of these cases, some of these stories, of kids who've gotten heart inflammation side effects from the vaccines. They call it myocarditis. Like it's a really reasonable question for a parent to have. Does my child under the age of 18 stand a better chance of um, health with th either through getting the vaccine or not? Like that's a good question. And one that I think we should get clear answers on. And and are owed to parents before they uh, get their kids vaccinated. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think you're uh, correct. I will say, um, young adults, on the other hand, um, so at least here I'm looking at right now, a you know at health, you know, um, you know, public health department report from Harvard University. Mm -hmm. um, and it says here, and of course, I'm just skimming it. However, it's important to remember that at least 470 children ages zero to 17 have died from COVID. Many more have needed to be hospitalized and long term health effects even after mild infection in children are now being recognized. Mm -hmm. So 470 children, again, nowhere near the 600,000, you know, number that we have here in the United States. But 470 children is significant. We do know that they can carry the virus. And we know that particularly in some of these unvaccinated, um, unvaccinated clusters, 
it is possible for them to carry the virus and give it to other people and pass it on. So they may not, they may get the sniffles. Um, and, you know, of course they could get long-term effects and, and yeah. all that, Yeah. but they could also pass it on to uh, their grandparents or someone else's grandparents or the custodian right. at school right. or, you know, the elderly teacher who, particularly if they're not vaccinated. I, I also, you know, I'm going to tell you one really quick story uh, about, about Pfizer. Uh, my, my personal experience with Pfizer, shout out to this guy. I'm not going to say his name. Um, but he, a friend of mine in the, in their, you know, in the early nineties, we were in high school, mid mid nineties, we were in high school. Um, his father was, uh, like an executive at Pfizer and they were a regular middle-class family like mine, you know, had a nice little middle-class house and their father, his father year after year, rather than taking the cash bonuses that were offered by, you know, Pfizer, which was a relatively small company at the time. Um, of course he took stock rather than, uh, take, you know, the, the cash bonuses, which were, you know, substantial for an executive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he had, you know, made a nice life for himself and his family. And then overnight, literally, a little drug that came in a little blue pill called I knew this Viagra. was going to be I knew this was going to be a Viagra story. I don't know how I knew. I just had a hunch. Go ahead. Viagra dropped. Uh -huh. Overnight, he had 90 million dollars. <laughs> wow. And they are like fabulously wealthy. Literally, it was like, yes. you know, he went to bed at 10:30, yes. kissed his wife, uh-huh, you know, had nothing. That's right. You know, and let me Pfizer's, tell you, Pfizer's stock price went in the direction of that bill's effects. Yeah, exactly. I, I was going to say, you know what? Um, <laughs> if I woke up and I had $90 million, yes. I would not need Viagra. No. I would already have an erection. That's right. <laughs> you know I mean? And if it lasted <laughs> for more than four hours, you still don't have to call your doctor. You'd be fine. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it might last a lifetime. <laughs> you know, I might, I might literally walk around with a lifetime of boner. But... Um, <laughs> Hopefully we're not we're not watched by any children. I don't uh, think so. We only got a thousand views on YouTube, so I don't think so. But uh, you know, erections are part of life. They're science. Uh, so, at any rate, he's still going. Um, he's still <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's my my Pfizer story. But I will say, <laughs> that's the whole thing. This guy that, took that, the, he took the stock options, and that was a good choice. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, Children six, seven, eight, they don't need vaccination. But 12 and older, um, because we have had some children who have died and because they could be hosts for the virus, um, I think parents can consider vaccinating their children. And it is recommended by a lot of the, the medical, pediatric medical boards out there. Sure. It, it, let me just, but the, the only thing that I think of when you're talking about all this, and uh, again, you know, rely on the scientists for this, not Vince. But here's my my suggestion to the scientists, and then I'd like for this to be the the thing to think about. You remember the Great Barrington Declaration? Those guys who came out who uh, last year, a number of scientists from top universities across the United States, uh, who said what we should be doing is focused protection. We just focus on the vulnerable. And that was in a world where we didn't have the vaccine. But I imagine that the 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 essence of that should be. What, how we consider vaccination. And we did, by the way, one of the other than, you know, politicians with access, um, it was old people who got vaccinated first and appropriately so because of the most vulnerable population. 
And that's how we should think about the rest of the pandemic. Don't force it on anybody. Uh, give them good advice. And if you've got the kind of comorbidities that'll lead to uh, severe outcomes from COVID, then you're a great candidate and probably should be vaccinated. That includes children who have those comorbidities. If you were to look through all of those 400 some odd deaths that you just mentioned uh, among children, you know, dollars to donuts, these are kids who had comorbidities. They they're had other health sure. concerns already. And um, as a result, that's a really useful benchmark in terms of us thinking about, okay, who really should be vaccinated, who shouldn't, and let's give those people good advice so they do it. And, no, and I, of their own volition. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think, um, you know, the vulnerable should be the people that we are thinking about first. Unfortunately, in some of these uh, unvaccinated clusters, um, there are people who are vulnerable who are not getting vaccinated. And so I think the door-to-door -door effort is something where they're trying to, to give people information. It's not necessarily a, a situation where someone's going to chase you around your house and stick a needle in you. Um, this, this is, you know, a, a situation where they're trying to give you accurate information. They're trying to go as far as we can in order to protect uh, the vulnerable as best we can. I, I really don't like the characterization of people being forced, which is why I found, you know, I won't say this person's name because I don't think they deserve any more press to get enough of that on CNN. But like, you know, when you start comparing it to Nazis and, you know, and all that kind of stuff, I think it's ridiculous. Like this is an effort, you know, unless you're going to call everyone who goes door to door. So businesses that go door to door trying to give you information about their businesses, it might be irritating but they're not breaking any laws. They're not forcing you, you know, to chop down a tree in your yard. They're just going door to door trying to help, uh, you know, their grow their business. Same thing, you know, or, unless you're going to start calling um, Jehovah's Witnesses or people that, you know, are, are trying to give you a pamphlet, you know, as irritating as sometimes it can be for some people, depending on what time of day they come or what you're doing when they when they come by, they're not they're trying to give you genuine what they feel is genuine information. And I think it's the same thing. Don't I don't think we should characterize it as people being forced to be vaccinated. Yeah, I just think that the wisdom of it is not that great. It's like, you know, if, if the the Biden White House knows that among the reticent, I mean, it's not all Republicans. There's definitely Democrats who are reticent. Sure. Uh, there, are pe there are people who are reticent. No question. But yeah, the yeah. big one that they keep saying is, oh, it's Trump supporters. At least that's what we hear a lot in the press. And I, I think the conventional wisdom is on that is probably right. Mostly that. But. Like the idea that like a bunch of people who've been dispatched by the Biden administration knocking on your door is going to make you more likely to get a COVID shot. I just don't think I just don't think it's what it's inspired. That's all. So I'll just um, I do have some statistics for that. So um, in April 2021, counties where the most vaccinated people voted for Trump had an average vaccination rate of 20.6 percent mm -hmm. compared to 20.2 percent in counties that went for Biden. That's not a big gap, right? But now, by July 2021, the average vaccination rate in Trump-leaning counties was 35%, and in Biden-leading counties, it was 46.7%. So there is kind of this partisan divide to it. Yeah. I do want to ask you a, another question right after we take this quick break. So... My question to you is, um, when we talk about forcing people, I don't think that the government is trying to force people, but there is private industry yes. um, that is thinking about this. Trinity Healthcare, one of the largest healthcare providers, particularly 
in the Catholic tradition um, is requiring that employees be vaccinated. So these are people who largely work in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to know what you think about companies and businesses yeah. um, saying that if you want to work for us, you need to be vaccinated, particularly ones that work in healthcare and work with sick people who are, as you said, the vulnerable. Yes. Um, should the people who are treating them, the people who come and shake their hands and talk to them about their diagnosis, should those people be vaccinated? Uh, good question. So, and, and, and do those companies have the right to demand that of their workers? Um, so no, they shouldn't compel people to be vaccinated. Uh, they shouldn't force them. I, I and I'll and I'll explain on on the idea that the government doesn't mandate this, and it's it, it, the way the system is set up. It's like whatever the CDC says is what most corporations and businesses actually do. So yes, the government is not explicitly mandating things, but the words of the CDC are really important, right? So think about your own community, like. The, when you like when they decided to change the guidance on vaccines and masking, that was the time when businesses started changing what they would allow as you entered their business. Um, you know, a lot of the state mandates were based on whatever the CDC says at any given time. So the effect of the words of the government uh, play a huge role in uh, how businesses comport themselves. So there is it's not quite a mandate, but it is deeply it's it's almost completely compulsory. Now, on the issue of like forced vaccines by businesses, I'm uncomfortable with it, uh, especially in the certain in this circumstance, which is unique. Typically, when you have organizations that compel vaccines, which is normal in society, like with schools, for instance, that's obviously you have your kid has to have all their shots before they go to school. Those are a bunch of vaccines. That makes total sense to me. What makes a lot less sense to me is the situation we find ourselves in right now. These vaccines are authorized under what's known as an emergency use authorization. This is an extraordinarily unique situation where the government has said, these aren't even fully authorized, but go ahead and give them to the public. And the reason for that and the conditions for that are there is no known treatment for this disease. And the only available option to us is for people to vaccinate. Now, that means the option is there, right, for vulnerable people. And they should take it if they're vulnerable. Uh, it is it is a good idea to do that. And that is a fire break against spreading in whatever community you're in, including inside of your office. And also, it's designed to protect the truly vulnerable. So I get really annoyed when I see people who are like, like, I'm vaccinated, but I don't know if that person is. Okay, but that doesn't have anything to do with you. Your health is dictated by your vaccination status. And in the very limited circumstance of a breakthrough infection, which is exceedingly rare, uh, which could affect anybody who's vaccinated or who has been previously affected with COVID, like really you've done everything you can to protect yourself. Stop burdening yourself mentally with being concerned with who around you is or isn't vaccinated. And then I guess, you know, the last thing I'll say is, is about healthcare workers. My opinion on that is a little trickier. I, I could see why a hospital would be concerned about that. Uh, I'm still uncomfortable with mandatory vaccines in workplaces, uh, in particular, an emergency use authorized vaccine. I think that it, the math on that changes a bit when it's fully fully authorized. But you know, for now, no, I'm opposed to it. So um, 
if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, cases of COVID-19 recently uh, have rose or risen, I'm sorry, uh, 11% and hospitalization is up 7%. Um, actually, deaths are down, you know, which I think indicates, number one, the effect, the effectiveness of the vaccines. And, and mm-hmm. I think it also indicates how we're getting better at treating uh, COVID-19. But when I say that, you know, the reason I brought that up is because hospitalizations are up. The worst thing that could happen is you have a bunch of unvaccinated people within a hospital setting and it spreads around the hospital and then people stop showing up for work. And then you have a rise in hospitalization and fewer people showing up to work to treat those people. And, you know, you know, so you have this this opposite effect where People are like, oh, I'm sick. I'm calling out. Maybe these people are healthy. Maybe they're not going to end up in the hospital, but they're like, you know, I'm not feeling well. So they don't show up for work. And then you have this increased need with fewer providers. I think that's one uh, thing that, that could happen. But one, thing, the, one, argument, one argument against that would be, you know, look what happened this whole last year. There was no vaccine for the, most of the pandemic and the healthcare workers kept showing up and they did their job. Uh, so, yeah, under, many, many did, on. not all. Not all. Some of them quit early on. uh, We had lots of people who were healthcare providers who were like, I have diabetes. I can't go. Yeah, I'm not going into work or, you know, I have a sick kid at home or I have a sick grandmother. I'm not going into work with because we don't know how infectious this thing is and we don't know what's going on. So that did happen. And there were uh, shortages of frontline workers in a lot of those hospitals, particularly in places like New York City. So I think it is. That is one concern. Uh, the other concern, of course, is that you will have providers who maybe are asymptomatic, perhaps, who spread it unwittingly and unknowingly to vulnerable people, making them more sick. And particularly in these unvaccinated clusters, excuse me, unvaccinated clusters where people who have this mistrust of this government vaccine or of big pharma. You know, I think as we've already stated, you and I have both agreed uh, mistrust of the government and mistrust of big pharma has been earned. Um, But I I still think that you may have some vulnerable people who are in for something else who, you know, it is a possibility that some asymptomatic, you know, nurse's aide or physician or maybe even, you know, a dietitian, you know, dietary person or, you know, comes in and checks your blood pressure, sneezes, and then you're sick. You're sicker than you were when you came in. And so that is, and then number one, let's also talk about Trinity Healthcare, their financial interest. Let's say that scenario happens. Let's say some nurse's aide comes in, takes someone's vitals, uh, you know, coughs, sneezes, something, doesn't feel sick, feels, you know, fine, is fine, is an asymptomatic carrier, makes that person who they check their vitals ill, um, and then that person gets sick and perhaps dies. Let let me just finish. I, I believe, you know, if I am that person's relative, you better believe I am suing to the point where I own that hospital because I took my, you know, mother, grandmother, whomever to the hospital in order to be treated for something that had nothing to do with COVID-19 and they got sicker in a healthcare setting. Okay. 
And so, I think that, so they're thinking about liability as well is, is my point. Yeah. Okay. My, I have two quick thoughts on that. One is like, you know, at some point we have to say it's on you. Meaning if you're vulnerable and you don't get vaccinated that, and, and you get, ne- and you get severe negative effects from it, like you had the option, dude, you could have done it. It's on you like, in, like a normal world. And um, I know that sounds callous, but that's like, that's a genuine way to look at this. It's like, you know, we, you give people enough information, you let them make up, make up their own minds. And if they get hit hard, even killed by it, like they made a decision, they decided whether or not they wanted the vaccine. If they opted out, they didn't get it. The other is people get sick all the time in hospitals. Actually a great way to get sick is like, go hang out in a hospital because yeah, well, in an ER definitely <laughs> like, because lots of people show ER, up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I avoid ERs at all costs because you are going to be there because they make people sit there for eight hours with severe illnesses, yes. you know, because, you know, they got people rushed in with gunshot wounds. So and it's not kid, like, and the ER is never like well ventilated. It's always like heavy pregnant, like stagnant air, you know, just like yeah, sitting but, around in it. So that's one good thing about masks now is I think people are going to go into ERs with masks on. You know what I mean? Like before people didn't think about those kinds of things. It was like, all right, I'm going to the ER, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, I think about like times that, you know, I haven't felt good and, you know, I've had to go to the ER, which is the worst case scenario. Like, but if if that happened now, I would absolutely wear a mask and I have masks in my house, which I would not have had five years ago. So I think that, you know, and one, if we want to look at the bright side of this, if there's anything, I think people are going to be more prepared and you're going to get less sickness in ERs because people are going to be masked up and ready. Entirely possible. I mean, you know, they think it's been a tradition, typically an Asian tradition has been to wear masks when you are sick. So you don't transmit illness. Um, Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe that happens inside of uh, ERs. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I, I did want to ask you, you were telling me about your hero who's now soon becoming my hero. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Let me let me pull her name up. Let me I, I need to. We're I coming to... close to the mm-hmm. Olympics and, you know, there have been all these kinds of things and disappointing things that have happened. It, it's good to hear about, you know, an athlete and and, and a scholar that we yeah. can actually be proud of. And OK, let me tell really you about excited her. about. Let me tell you about her. This girl is my hero. Uh, her name is Zayla Avant-Garde. She's 14 years old. Uh, she's an eighth grader from just outside New Orleans. And she just won the 93rd Scripps National Spelling Bee this week. And uh, the New York Times points out that it makes her the first black American student to ever take the cup after 10 other finalists stumbled in the competition's final rounds she's not the first black girl though to win there was a uh, jamaican winner called jody ann maxwell who won in 1998 but she's the first black american to do it um zayla uh avant-garde and um what's amazing about her a a bunch of things first of all any kid who wins the spelling bee is amazing because they have better spelling shops than i do now and will for the rest of my life um uh but also she holds three Guinness world records already. And it has nothing to do with spelling. The three Guinness world records she holds are for dribbling, bouncing and juggling basketballs. In other words, her basketball handles have earned her three Guinness world records. She did all of that before the ninth grade. And I saw a video of her uh, yesterday as well. 
taking jump shots and she is a dead eye. She's like, like all over the court, just nailing these shots. And I honestly, I keep thinking about her. I'm like, this is like this. I think seriously, maybe the most well-rounded individual I've ever heard of. Like, she's like truly incredible. And, uh, and for that reason this week and, and certainly into the well into the future, uh, Zayla Avant-Garde is my hero at 14 years old. <laughs> well, Milwaukee Bucks, are you watching? Because you need some jump shooters. <laughs> and she may just be available uh, to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's an awesome story. Now, I wonder, the Jamaican girl, of course, we got to make everything political. But you know, <laughs> the Jamaican girl, was she Jamaican-American or was she Jamaican from Jamaica? I think she was from Jamaica. That's why they the New York Times just made this distinction that um, uh, she became Zayla, who just won, became the first Black American student okay. to take the cup. Uh, and um, Jody Ann Maxwell, when she was 12 years old, think about that, to win the National Spelling Bee at 12 years old, won in 1998. She was from Jamaica. Well, see, I, the only reason I ask that is because there is a political movement um, and I don't know if you've heard of this, um, and it's been misshapen in many different ways to almost become this black nativist thing, but, uh, the, the originators of it had good intentions and I think it was tied to reparations, but it's called the ADOS movement or yes. ADOS. Um, one of the, the founders of that movement is a guy well, named Sandy Parity. Tell, tell people what it stands for. So just so people know. Uh, American Descendants of Slaves. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a way of distinguishing um, when we do a lot of these studies and we talk about um, Black, you know, outcomes and things like that, a lot of times we conflate people who are immigrants uh, with people who are the descendants of enslaved Africans. So in, in the United States. So we'll conflate people who are, you know, one of the, and, and, you know, Tucker Carlson and I, uh, you know, one time we discussed this on his show, um, how, and he was making the point that race isn't, you know, or is declining in significance because uh, one of the more prosperous groups is Nigerian Americans. They're, they're a relatively prosperous immigrant group. Yeah, now higher, a lot of, I think higher average incomes than, than white people, I think. Uh, yeah, and, and I think part of that, of course, um, there's a whole lot of nuance to that, and that is that poor Nigerians generally don't get it get into the United States. A lot of these people are educated and well off in Nigeria before they get here to the United States. So you're a surgeon in Nigeria, and then you get to the United States, and maybe you don't want to go to medical school for the entire time, so you become a pharmacist, and you make you know gen you know generally. A good amount of money. The the poor person in the north of Nigeria who's begging to bring our girls back is not generally the person, the Nigerian who makes it to the United States, and that's true for many different countries uh, around the world. So the point is, they wanted to, you know, a, uh, people like Sandy Darity, who is an economist, right. wanted to distinguish when he's doing his economic studies between the descendants of. Uh, enslaved Africans in the United States versus people from the Caribbean or people from, you know, Africa mm -hmm. um, and from, you know, black immigrants from Latin America even. And so, but it's morphed, you know, into this kind of black nativist thing. Yeah. Uh, it and, showed up this, this, um 
this discussion showed up when Kamala Harris was chosen right uh, as uh, Biden's running mate because there was a lot I, I'm trying to remember if what the phrasing was that people objected to I think she was described as as half African American and then people were saying no uh, she's half Jamaican is that that's right right her yeah, yeah, her, her family's Jamaican, from Jamaican. And Indian. but but wait but wait a second I mean Jamaican if you're if you're black and you're in Jamaica you're by way of Africa I mean by way of Jamaica in other words like you uh, you're of African descent so African American would still be true uh, it, right the, the parsing of the language is all um and, it, I don't know, and I think fascinating. It's, it's different when you are you know second and third generation you know what i mean or you were you know kamala harris was born in the united states yeah she is in oakland you know berkeley chuck wearing you know black woman african-american woman um now her father was a Canadian Jamaican or something like that. And, you know, even though he lived in the United States and maybe maybe got US citizenship, you know, at heart, he's still a Jamaican or a Canadian. But Kamala Harris was born in Oakland and she is like a Bay Area African-American woman. And I think, you know, a lot of my students have African parents, but, you know, they're indistinguishable from you know, the other students who have, whose parents are the descendants of enslaved Africans. Mm -hmm. um, so I think once you're not the, the first generation, it changes when you, you know, when you're not the direct immigrant, you know, those kids are African-American, you know what it's, I mean? It's, so, the, it's the melting pot. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, people start to assimilate and become much more like people like one another than unlike one another. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I remember I wrote that in, in an article for FoxNews.com and I called Kamala Harris an African-American. I called Barack Obama an African-American uh, with intention. That, that was part of the point um, as they were born in the United States, regardless of who their parents are, they culturally, you know, kind of assimilate to African-American identity. Um, and there were all these people, largely not black, you know, who responded, she's not an African-American. It's like, like, <laughs> no, that she is. Her parents aren't, you know what I mean? Like her, yeah. her, her dad, he's not an African, well, he's not African-American culturally in the way that, you know, I am. Uh, Citizenship wise, of course, he is an African-American, mm -hmm. but, you know, culturally, probably not. You know, it's like if you were to move, for example, to Mexico, you wouldn't be a Mexican, but, you know, you would, but you wouldn't. But I guarantee you, uh, when you and your wife have your second little colonies, like that kid's going to be a Mexican. <laughs> like, that's going to yes. be a young I've been telling Mexican my wife, colonies. I've been telling my wife that for years. <laughs> <laughs> Our next I'm kid's going to be a Mexican. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting your little Mexican. Yes, you should. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm, oh, go ahead. No, Please. I'm just, I was thinking we should wrap this up. I, I, uh, you know, I, uh, I was happy to tell you about that. Thank you for reminding me that I, I was, you know, I was, I was kind of like, I was pumped to see this, this girl. I mean, it's like, she's done it all. This, this, uh, uh, Zayla avant-garde. They changed her last name, by the way, uh, the meaning like her family decided to change their name. Uh, to avant-garde. Yeah, I was um, going to say, that's a really interesting, you know, kind of name that 
you know, to have it be avant-garde. And it's and it's hyphenated too, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm just seeing, if, I'm looking in the New York Times piece to see if I can uh, figure out why. Oh, here it is. Zayla, whose father changed her surname. Here, here we go. From Heard to avant-garde in homage to the jazz great John Coltrane has for years found other other avenues of success. Um, so she's uh, she set three Guinness World Records. Oh, and here they are. The most basketballs dribbled simultaneously, six of them for 30 seconds. The most basketball bounces, 307 bounces in 30 seconds. And the most bounce juggles in one minute, 255 using four different basketballs. In 2018, she appeared in a commercial with NBA star Steph Curry that showcased her skills. And she learned how, listen to this, she learned how to divide five-digit numbers by two-digit numbers in her head, a skill she said she has a hard time explaining. <laughs> um, so pretty impressive. Uh, I don't know if anybody will be surprised, but she is homeschooled. That's uh, that's uh, one of the ways she got there. Absolutely. And we're schooling you at home. No, I'm kidding. But I want you guys to like and subscribe uh, to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. We're going to have these kinds of conversations. Like I said, sometimes it's going to be fisticuffs. Sometimes it's going to be hugs. Uh, but we want to embrace you guys. Uh, like, subscribe. See us on YouTube, on Facebook, watch, and anywhere you can find a podcast. Peace out.